One, two, three, podcast. One, two, three, podcast. Two, three, hey! Hello, you're listening to Lucky Lucky Reading Reading Podcast, Podcast. a process piece where I, Jay, and me, T, talk together about what we're currently reading, especially if we haven't yet finished. Reading. Today, we're talking about six things. Number one, I'm reading The Overstory by Richard Powers. Number two, Shani's reading Skins of Columbus, A Dream Ethnography by Edgar Garcia. Number three, this is the In the Bathroom section of the podcast. Professional podcast. When My Brother Was an Aztec by Natalie Diaz. Number four, Jay, is what? Is a collection of poetry called A New Index for Predicting Catastrophe by Madhur Anand, published in 2015 in Guelph, Ontario, Canada, by a publisher that I will look up. Shoutouts to Jagdeep Reina, an incredible artist who gifted me this wonderful book. Shoutouts, Jag. Shoutouts, Jag. What's up, Jag? On number five in the list, I'm reading a book that's also called a game called Kentucky Route Zero. Nice. That's finally finished. That's out of uh, a company, small team of developers. I'm sure you know them. You don't need me to say their name. And so number six is... An article from the Washington Post published on January 29th, 2020 by Kevin Seth, and it is about the death of Omer Gomez Gonzalez, a Mexican conservationist. Because I forgot the names. This is our first podcast episode, everyone, so let's just dive right in. Okay. So number one, I'm reading a book called The Overstory by Richard Powers. I'm reading it on my beautiful Barnes & Noble Nook, uh, sponsored by Nook. Uh, let's see. It was $10 on the Nook edition. Wow. Probably $50 to get a print copy. The library was completely backed up. The audiobook on the library, it turns out, you need to wait in line to download an audiobook from the library. What? They have 160 copies of the audiobook. First of all, it doesn't make any sense at all. Wait, I'm sorry. Not even audiobook. Ebook. To download, like, the Kindle or Nook version from the library. Apparently that's a finite resource. 400 people are in line to download this book. What? From the library. Wait, For 160 how? downloadable copies. Which is not, that's not how, down, that's not how, it's not how data works. No. It's not how files work. But, so there's a scarcity of this book. That's really weird. At least the EPUB version from the Los Angeles City Library Service.com. So that's background on the book. <laughs> and now on to my review. Um, <laughs> I like it. Good. There's no nook. What happens if you put a nook in a scanner? Can you scan a nook? I mean, it's so like a page. I'm gonna try it. That we... I feel like it could be great. I'm gonna scan a nook. Scan the and nook. then you print it out, and it's still you still get the border of the nook. Yes. Around it. 
so you still have the feeling of of engaging with the beautiful computerized device. The Overstory was released to critical acclaim and mass popular success. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 2018, 2018. Uh, from Norton. So, okay, so the Overstory, let's get into this, is a funny, multi generational American novel. Uh, it's it's also a funny book because the first 150 pages or so basically is, is is a long prologue in which we meet all of the seven or however many characters starting from their like deepest multi-generational background hmm. um so for instance the first chapter starts in the like late 17 or late 18 early 1900s with these two people meeting in new york under a mulberry tree and then they move to i want to say iowa and bring seeds of the mulberry tree plant this thing plant like a grove of mulberries only one of them survives and so um so this person that we're following is actually the great 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 grandfather of the person who we actually eventually end up following and care about. So we follow, you know, just in this, like, prologue first chapter, um, very much from, like, a God's eye point of view and very much, like, you know, willing to just, like, jump forward 50 years or whatever um, as this tree grows. And then in the East Coast, there's a fungus rot that, like, wipes out all the mulberries in the east coast so they all die so basically we've got like the last mulberry or like one of the last remaining kind of stalwart trees Mm. in iowa on this farm like you know it's a it's a it's a transplant and so are these people and blah 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 Mm. so sort of the whole first Mm. 150 pages is like that in that it's uh you know it's multi-generational it's it's about it's about connection to trees and this sort of invisible entanglements between humans and non-human specifically uh tree-based life and like ecological life Mm. um and then it kind of turns and becomes about these seven or so characters specifically and how their lives are also invisibly entangled and interconnected in ways that I haven't finished the book. So, you know, I think become about direct action upon sites of ecological disaster or just like, you know, wreckage of Mm. ecosystems in general, but specifically trees. Like it's a tree book written by a tree man. Mm. Everyone in the book is a tree man. Two stars. (laughs) Three out of 10. Three out of ten? Whoa. Okay, so that means it's very good or very bad? It means... No. I can't tell. This was a zero out of ten scale. I gave it a three. Okay. I gave it two stars out of five. <laughs> <laughs> kind of rounds to four, which is basically three. Um, I don't know. I'm really enjoying it. Oh, my God. It's a real page turner. <laughs> I think it's just a really specific kind of book (laughs) in which, um, 
okay, everything happens for a reason, and in which everybody's lives are entangled in such a way that, like, really, I guess you could say is, is just really overbearing on, like, an authorial level. Like, you feel the machinations of the plot, and you feel almost like the machinations of fate or God, like, really bringing these people into the places they need to be. Um, so I would compare it to the TV show Lost, in which all of these characters, uh, it turns out, are very special and very important, specifically to each other, uh, but also in general to, like, the universe of the show. And everything that happens to them every like stupid ass coincidence that happens to these stupid fucking vapid people on this island is actually like the most important thing that's ever happened and happens for like very specific reasons and like all of the stupid coincidences completely add up to this like tapestry of important shit that like always had to go this way right so i think that um the overstory unfortunately is like also deploying this this device that i find to be like pretty hacky and pretty silly um and like one that also feels really far removed from kind of randomness and arbitrariness and causality as i experience it as an actual person in actual ecologies it feels very much like these characters are very lucky for their lives to be so purposeful and like for even all of the bad things that happen to them uh to end up always being exactly where they're supposed to be so on that level i got a dock seven stars probably the big themes of the book are supposed to the big themes of like interrelation interconnectedness entanglement but also like sort of the the divine hand of nature like whatever bringing us together i think those themes are supposed to be real kind of wake-up calls to the audience um in which we feel yes you know um everything is and 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 don't get me wrong, everything is interrelated and interconnected, and, like, entanglement is a very important theme, and, like, these these things are really worth pursuing. Um, it just seems to me that this particular book is doing so in a way that's very saccharine and very, like, maybe even kind of, uh, kind of Planet Earth, the, the TV show, in a way, because it's like, oh, look, there's nature. Like, it's so beautiful. Look how, look how sick it is. Like, I don't need to do anything. Uh, which is weird to say about a book that's, like, about direct action on climate crises. Is this, would you call this an ideological critique? Or would you call this a, cri a critique of, like, your critique specifically? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The particular, I guess, tools in the form of fiction. Yeah, I think it's... Well, I don't know if I'm, like, ready to make a sweeping critique of fiction at this moment on our first episode of this podcast, <laughs> but I will. Um, <laughs> I think that the tools that this book is, is deploying... Um, I think that... 
I think it's the latter, to answer your question. I don't think that the ideologies of this book are anything other than like pretty admirable, kind of woo-woo, kind of like kind of Christian in a funny way. Regarding fiction, I think that this book deploys a lot of tropey fiction tropes. Um, you know, the multi-generational family novel, uh, let's say it, written by a white man uh, in like a big ol' fat novel form is, uh, that's as old as Texas Toast, am I right? So, um, it's, and it's not only that, it's like, it's like, it's like kind of empathy machine a little bit mm. in that we're, en- we're entering the consciousness, mm. the consciousnesses of all of these sort of disparate characters. Some of them are at the end of their rope. Uh, some of them are, are down and out or whatever. Um, and so it's a little bit of like watching this bad shit happen to these people so that they can be redeemed by like Mm. the salvational qualities of planet and of nature and of ecology um and maybe that is an ideological critique that i think that like the point of those things is not to like redeem human life but vice versa Mm. (laughs) um not redeem i don't think that humans are meant to like redeem the planet but like at least uh be less god-awful to it Mm. I'm about halfway through this book. I'm ready to see what the fuck happens next. I'm deeply enjoying reading it. It's deeply comforting, like Texas toast. And um, maybe it'll leave me feeling a little bit greasy. Lucky. Lucky podcast. Lucky. Okay, number two on the book. On the Sorry. <clears throat> sorry. Number two on the list is... Edgar Garcia's Skin of Columbus, a dream ethnography, read, b- being read by Jani. Hi. Hi. I'm going to read a little bit of the inner cover. Colonial violence is a sticky phenomenon, gumming up the associational matrices of our daily lives and dreamscapes. Edgar Garcia intervenes with a poetic experiment. Every night of the three months of Columbus's first voyage to the Americas, Garcia read his corresponding journal entry before sleep. Asleep, his mind sutures displacements, migrations, and restorations into an assemblage of hemispheric becoming. Wow. Wow. So, Skins of Columbus, a dream ethnography, was published in 2019 in the United States of America by Fence Books and it's an outrageous and fluid and disturbing and suturing text formally it's a collage of essay of priorly written texts of science fictive historical pastiche dream worlds about uh, intestinal Mayan Venusian gods Mm. Um, it's the poetic landscape of a dream that intertwines Edgar Garcia's family wanderings through 
Central America and Mexico and the United States as it has been called now um, and it weaves these spaces and these textures also of Columbus's language in translation throughout the book it's a how what what more can I say about it at this moment I'm also not not done and so that's sort of a theme of the podcast is we're never done we're never done we're just we're still we're like chewing I'm chewing no lucky chewing podcast lucky chew lucky sorry lucky chew edit this (laughs) edit that edit that part so for example i'm on page 74 out of uh, how many about it's about 100 pages Uh i'm on 74 Mm -hmm. this is the poem Mm. that i'm on my skull is a sea cow for this one single line poem nice um how many stars Five. Five out of five? Five out of five. Five out of five. We've got our first five out of five. I am maybe a little, like, looser and maybe a little We'll see when I give a five out of five. We did this about cars yesterday, too. Yeah, we did. Um, You gave something a ten out of ten. I gave a truck. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I gave a truck that I saw a ten out of ten. I would never give a truck a ten out of ten. The color was so good, though. Good. Okay, so wow. So Skins of Columbus by Edgar Garcia gets a ten out of a five out of five Five stars. Also translating to a ten out of ten points. Yep. Um I have three questions. Sure. I'm gonna ask them all at once. Okay. I'll try to First question is how is this book an ethnography? Mm. Second question is what is a dream ethnography? Mm. And my third question is how is this book? A dream ethnography. Because we've got Michael Tausig gave a blurb on the back. Yep. Um, from from the bio, we learn that Edgar Garcia is a scholar of hemispheric literatures and cultures of the America. Sounds like ethnographic work to me. What is the what is the dividing line between ethnography and poetry for this book, or your experience of reading it? It's a great question. I want to answer it in two ways um i want to answer with the divide in mind but Mm -hmm. then i want to answer and argue that i don't think that ethnography and poetry are dissimilar or disconnected or divided so in the first way um i would say that this is an ethnography because it's specifically taking primary texts which can be read as ethnographies now um, as the basis and the foundation for this work, specifically uh, specifically works such as The Conquest of Mexico, specifically, which is a, a diary of conquistadors taking over in, in like hundreds of indigenous nations and populations in Mexico. But then also this is a book that takes Col- Christopher Columbus's diary which is a deeply observational, and I would say anthropological curiosity, an anthropological curio. Um, And indeed, Columbus saw the people that he was killing and murdering and stealing from as curios, I think. Mm -hmm. So there's this really strange interplay of the primary texts, as well as the practice of 
of autoethnography, which I think is kind of, which I think is this wild move that that Garcia is doing to to create the distance of witness, um, and then submerge his body deeply in witnessing what is happening at this like deep intergenerational cellular level of mm. his own life which is deeply intertwined and connected with the genocide of of people and like the destruction of Mexican and Central American cosmologies mm-hmm. and texts like pre um, pre-Spain and so the, the primary stuff I think is what makes this an ethnography um, the observation of of affects the observation of um, material language and embodiment of particular materials it's ethnography is so deeply metaphorical in mm. its way in the same way that anthropology is mm-hmm. I think and m- multiple times Gar- Garcia Garcia brings his own skept- his own skepticism and suspicion of the method of ethnography and the methods of anthropology uh, into this work as well. So there's also this really beautiful tension like while he is approaching it, he's re- he's kind of like turning and reorienting the gaze of ethnography and anthropology in its traditional like kind of northern global northern hemispheric way and like twisting it and at the same time feeling the pain of that torque and that twist and like what it does to him dreams so in christopher columbus's diary Mm -hmm. um he talks a lot about dreams Mm. that he has um and i mean it's it's deeply christian a lot of these dreams are really like epiphanic and really prophetic and um in this way he also kind of i don't know there was this weird slippage where like he also believed like that he was a god being visited by the christian god um, the catholic god at this time so there's there's this life world of dream this cosmological, deeply spiritual life world that happens in the state, the dream state, that I think deeply influenced Christopher Columbus in conquest, in these like interior conversations that he was kind of like having with himself, kind of throughout the travel through the Americas in this first voyage. And so I think that we can't underestimate the power of dreams in the work of history, mm. the power of dreams in the work of Do you think that, or does the book think that? I mean, that is like a Walter Benjamin quote. <laughs> like, that's... And an Adorno quote, also. Edgar Garcia uh, kind of just, like, squeezes this quote in under this beautiful image. Uh-huh. Um, but it's also... It's important. It's like between the idea like I dreamt and it came to me in a dream lies the span of history and so there's this fascinating kind of meta 
conversation um, and dialogue that is happening throughout this book um, about what the dream can do, what tangibles the dream affects in reality, um, how how it marks your consciousness and ability to understand history, how it inter like interpenetrates history and the way that we think about our daily lives. So the book is doing that. I um, I've come to uh, I think a more nuanced and wider understanding of of the dream's importance, I think, um, in in reading this to to the ways that history is constructed and like you know genocides are affected and like I think it's a fascinating space I also I also think that the dream the dream itself is a place where we can engage empathetically with subjects with not even with subjects but with people who perhaps were like our conquerors in this way um it's a space that it's like subterranean everyone goes through it have I been talking for too long Okay. No. Midway, you're still listening. Wow. You're listening to Lucky Reading Podcast. Pow. Hello. Welcome back to Lucky Reading Podcast. Um, my name is Jay. My name is T. We're doing it. We're, we're doing it for real this time. And we're doing it out in the open air, so you might hear the beautiful sounds of. Eastern Los Angeles, California. We're recording in my mom's backyard, and thank you, mom. So, uh, we're now at the stage of the podcast called "In the Bathroom." It's an inventory of what I read while pooping, and maybe Jay too. We'll see. Uh, What's in the bathroom right now is three things in a pile. Quartz magazine? Is that what it's called? Orion. Orion magazine. Free issue. We got for free. An issue of Jacobin from like last August. And When My Brother Was an Aztec by Natalie Diaz, a poetry collection from Copper Canyon Press.org. I'm reading it. I've been reading it very slowly because the poems are dense and vivid and often full of disturbing shit and I've been loving it I feel bad that it's in the bathroom cause it's really good but also I'm a really dedicated reader while shitting and so I'm taking my time reading these poems which are often about one or two pages long which is a good amount of time for a poop Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm interested in if you can give us a little bit um, more of the, you know, the life world of the poems. You'd like me to talk more about the book? I would. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, sure. (laughs) I'm only, you know, I'm only probably four or five poems deep. I'll be honest. Um... They're so okay. So what can I say? So they're they're definitely 
thematically very interested in overlaps between like both native first nations and indigenous identities and american and americana ways of being a lot of them take place if a poem can take place in a place they take place on reservations or in bars that are on the outskirts of reservations or in sort of like historically ambiguous places where uh, a person's subjecthood overlaps you know their historical subjecthood and this sort of contemporary subjecthood i think you see that most obviously with the title poem when my brother was an aztec is you know using this sort of prolonged protracted image of the speaker's brother like doing ritual sacrifice on the speaker's parents um the speaker's parents seem very oblivious to this and are relating to the brother in like a very 21st century parental way and so i think the friction between like the Mm. historical presence and the historical self and also the mythologized self overlapping with you know the contemporary embodied subject of capitalist and Mm. racist machinations all of that stuff is in a big messy stew i think for this collection so it's yeah it's 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 works often in in voice and often in kind of monologue or a letter even sort of written out to a you Mm. dealing with these themes and doing so in a way that like leads to jarring sites of violence and spaces of divinity that like sort of a common thread again i'm so early in the book but like a common thread throughout the poems that i've read at least is like no there are no angels here angels are for white people um and of course we thought that columbus was a white angel uh back in that day so that sense of like interacting with the divine and or or a certain kind of divine and having that divine be really almost irrelevant or like impossible to to apply to one's own life or one's own lived experience is also like a really interesting theme that runs throughout the book so what do i give it three stars interesting do you also talked about form (laughs) yeah when we were discussing before we before we had a podcast when we were just talking like regular people (laughs) um yeah i thought i don't know why but i thought it would be more sort of formally all over the place Mm. like one of these you know outrageous edgar garcia type books where just form is just fucking exploded all over the damn zone um but no diaz is very it's very um measured it's very kind of masterful um I'm talking stanzas of of varying length and, you know, not very long lines and uh, kind of legible, digestible, poemy poems, I gotta say. Mm. And very narrative ones as well, um, which all that is, is great, you know? Poem doesn't have to be a formal disaster site to lead us into the actual disaster sites absolutely so i agree 
that's it for our in the bathroom and section. And that concludes the bathroom. Flush. What, what's next? I'm talking about a book of poetry um, called A New Index for Predicting Catastrophe that is by Madhur Anand. I was gifted this book by a dear friend and wonderful artist named Jagdeep Reina. What is it? This is a fascinating book of poetry that similarly does not explode form, um, does not necessarily explode uh, as much as you can explode enjambment. Enjambment is already pretty exploded. Um, this is California. You hear a helicopter above. Ever heard of it? Ever heard of wit? <laughs> wit. Pause for the helicopter. Kate Bush. You can go. Okay. Um, so it's a book of poetry that is written by a biologist and so focused on cellular biology and biology of, of plants specifically. So she's not, I wouldn't, she wouldn't call herself a botanist, I would say, but as the title indicates, a new index for predi- predicting catastrophe. She's in, indexing, is that a word? Yeah, it is. Indexing experience in the slippery space between kind of like scientific language and definitive um just definitive naming practices, which I think kind of allow for this, like, weird purity of form of, like, you know, these particular objects that you're witnessing, but, like, actually they're, like, so uh, volatile in their existence, which is what the poem aspect of these small observations, I think, uh, allow room for. Um, we much mother and wander through wander through like science conferences, wander through the gardens of the spaces that she's visiting for work um, and bringing this interesting or like illuminating this interesting collision of kind of like like how you talk about these things inside versus outside how you talk about like moss uh within the institution versus like just having a relational field with it outside um i have been both deeply bored by the work (laughs) and (laughs) Um, and really, like, uh, admiring of the work at the same time. I think because formally it's, I don't think her forms are doing anything for the poem, for the language and for the thought. I think that in in a way it's so, it's so weird to like have this feeling about something when I'm like, oh, I wish it was another thing (laughs) instead. Um... But a lot of these poems, it's Ain't like that life, though. they're just on the edge of being really interesting, like like micro essays, like paragraphs, um, and I don't really understand uh, what is happening in the breath movement that 
is implied by her line breaks. I've only felt weighted down and and like encumbered by these line breaks when actually I think a lot of the content of her poems is seeking to to explode into new shapes. Hmm. Um so maybe maybe it's actually interesting. I'm probably just reading into this tension. I don't know that it's it, that it's her intention necessarily to like explore this like the weightiness of renegotiating or like reorienting our perspective to to catastrophe or to like inter relativity <laughs> like ecological stuff but I don't think she's like intentionally doing it but it's something to think about but actually should have written short essays sorry three out of five three out of five but love you thank you for your for your writing buy the book don't get the don't get the nook version yeah buy the book it's a beautiful book beautiful pink and turquoise mm. font pink and turquoise text pink uh bright pink spine Ooh. excuse me who published it publisher in guelph guelph publishers thanks jag hella guelph next on the list all right on to number five on to number five kentucky route zero by a small team of people of people okay Here's from google.gov. Kentucky Route Zero is a point-and-click adventure game developed by Cardboard Computer and published by Annapurna Interactive. I've been wanting to f- fucking play this game since I was... How old was I? Since I was 20. How old are you now? 37,000 years old. <laughs> how old am I? Wait, okay, what year was it? Yeah, since I was 20, and now I'm 28 almost catch you at my birthday party in two weeks i've been wanting to play this game for a long time it's a very small team of devs who have dedicated their asses to making a long-form piece of media basically a book that's why we're talking about it on lucky reading podcast um they started it back in 2000 who knows and now it's finally done and I'm playing it not for the first time, but for the first time. Wow. I started at the beginning, but I haven't seen the beginning since I was 20, right? Okay. So it's been a second. Things were different when I was 20. And I'm currently halfway done, still working on it. It's great. Did they put it out yearly in chapters? Like, how? Think- why have you been waiting? I think probably that was their intention, but they I, I think that they the project just ran away from them. Mm. I think it just took them fucking longer than they expected. Which, you know, that's that's the weird thing about video games, I think too, is that is is that it's such a public process, like the actual development of a game. There's so much letting people into sort of the behind the scenes quadrant of the game that people feel very much entitled to 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 know exactly when something is going to happen which is mm. just not how art production really can work i think so kentucky route zero is a game wherein the user clicks around to walk and clicks around to talk <laughs> and to drive and to drive 
and to pat a dog to pat a dog and also to have strange reminiscences and memories and dreams uh it's billed as a magical realist adventure point and click which i think is pretty fair uh and definitely it wears its influences on its sleeve first character you interact with his name is marquez uh duh very moody very kind of lynchian ghostian as in david lynch yeah david lynch and david ghost can you tell us about some of like why it's it's like a book to you you're immersed in 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 a moodiness you're feeling like it's life on the road but the road is like a crazy fractal impossible road underground called kentucky route zero wow it's a it's a road through the subconscious mm. and very also kafka-esque you could say um but with a kind of whimsicality and with a kind of um like real human mm. feeling of desire for connection and sense that even in the kind of sweeping magical arbitrariness of the whole production there could still be this core of of emotional connection and like meaning or something like that Mm. so in that way maybe it's very similar to the overstory i don't know um haven't finished it got picked up by a giant eagle and flew to the woods uh once we got to the woods it was like those surrealist paintings right where the 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 tree that looks like it's the foreground is actually the background Mm. and the 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 negative space behind the tree that looks like it's the background is actually the foreground Mm. so you know a book can't technically do that so thank you for listening where can you get kentucky root zero girl any bookstore steam gog the humble store the website okay I think it's out on the Switch, the Nintendo Switch oh, from nice. Nintendo. Which Teo's going to get for Teo's birthday. To self-medicate. Um, it's time for the gossip column of our section. Today's goss has to do with um, heavy books. <laughs> They're so heavy. <laughs> yeah, is Crash and Horkai's new book heavy? I got a review copy. Okay. I didn't get a review copy. I bought a review copy <laughs> from a used bookstore. Bootleg. Nobody wanted to give me a review copy for free. But I think it has probably worse quality paper, which means it's lighter. Um, but I don't know. I think it might even be a hardcover. This is New Directions has started... Pu- this is the Goss section of my column. New Directions has started publishing shit in hardcover as though they're fucking... Penguin Random House, FSG, or whoever the shit who's publishing a book for $30 just because it has a cardboard cover will last unto infinity. No, it won't. Stop doing that, New Directions. Let me buy your books for the cheap price. And that's the hot take on the Lucky Reading. On the Lucky Goss. Thank you. The sixth thing that we're going to talk about is... An article that I read in the Washington Post, I 
saw this article and I'm feeling really sad. Omero Gomez Gonzalez, Mexico's monarch butterfly defender, comma, found dead. This was published on January 29th, 2020, 7.40 p.m. Eastern Time, just in case anyone wants to look that up, because sometimes articles such as this disappear because the deaths of environmentalists are both taken seriously but are also erased. Tying all of this kind of back in, interestingly, to the overstory, which is taking on like the kind of interrelated divination that exists when you're watching logged wood pass by you on a train in front of you and you're stopped at the train stop. <laughs> so Omero Gomez Gonzalez was a former logger in uh, central Mexico's most prominent like logging forests and his family were loggers and he tells the story of being like you know being in the forest with members of his family while they're like on a break logging and they're watching all the monarch butterflies on migration in the forest and being like totally amazed by them and simul and still simultaneously like cutting down their habitat for their own economic stability um, but more like economic precarity because let's be real in industrialized places in the global south like your economic fucking work for money your labor is just like to being totally extracted and is like rarely staying with you so anyway Omero Gomez Gonzalez eventually became one of Mexico's like foremost defenders of the region's monarch butterfly population and worked with a lot of other activists and has been like fighting logging companies for a long time and eventually the Mexican government outlawed logging in the area which kind of brought the bio region for these monarch butterflies back to a stasis where they could like lay their eggs and pupate etc there but there's been a lot of illegal logging still in the area and so Gomez Gonzalez was like a very visible person there. I am first learning about him now. Um, I have been learning and reading about monarch like migration patterns but this is the first time that I actually came across his name. Many other people know who this person is but I didn't. Anyway, this person was found dead in a well in the forest that he was seeking to protect for the monarch butterflies. This is the article I'm reading. I can't talk about it in a literary way, but great journalism. Good job, Kevin Siff. So why are we talking about it? I think we're talking about it specifically because if I'm to think about a theme of this episode, mm -hmm. all of our authors in some way or another are reckoning with ecological catastrophe. Yeah. Um, and how humans are active inside of this and how we're passive inside of it I think that I think that all of the texts that we are currently reading are intertwined ecological destruction is deeply linked to colonization and uh, like post-colonial industrial existence and anti-colonial uh, spiritual work and psychic work and like governmental work, land rights work that's happening. I think it's all really intertwined. So I guess that's why I'm talking about it. 
That's also something I was reading. Yeah. No stars. <laughs> okay, so that's our podcast. Thank you for listening to Lucky Reading Podcast. If you like this podcast, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Oh, theme song. Episode one is over. Thanks for joining us, JNT, as we vamp about books, articles, soap bottles, street signs, and other media on Lucky Lucky Reading Reading Podcast. Podcast. The music you heard in this episode is Letter to Bernadette, a jammy demo. By the combined forces of T. Rivera Dundas, M. Whiteman, and JFK Rondella. One, two, three, podcast. Podcast for turns, the company.